Welcome to Akasha Talks, a podcast on consciousness, healing, and different ways to interact and weave those together, both old and new, to be able to get the most out of your life. I'm your host, Lance Baker, coming to you from Newcastle, Australia. Hope you kick back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome, Daniel Four. I've just finished reading your book. I've done some basic ancestor work myself previously, but it's just been led by little things I've discovered and things I've looked into. And I've been looking forward to, to reading your book and really enjoyed it. And I was looking even more forward to doing the workshop of people you trained here before this Corona thing put a pause on that. So, we get to have a chat now and share some of uh, your knowledge and your your life's work, of what you've discovered working with other cultures and doing your own research. So, welcome. Great. Thank you, Lance. Um, <laughs> I'd like to just start with an acknowledgement of, of my own ancestors who were English, German, Irish, early settler colonialist in North America. And I live with my family in Western North Carolina. It's traditional Salagi or Cherokee lands. And in that way, we give acknowledgement also to your people, Lance, and to the traditional custodians there, which I believe are Awabako people in Newcastle, New South Wales. And so it's good to be situated in where we're having a conversation. And yeah, I'm glad to be talking, even though the conditions of global pandemic are a little intense and surprising and so we adapt and roll with things good to be exactly here. so we do and uh ancestors have had to adapt many times over the years <laughs> it's so, true it's been something i've been <laughs> emphasizing with others that our people have lived and a lot of times died as well through similar kinds of things so life moves on uh, now some of topics today are going to be a bit foreign to some of the listeners or, or viewers here. So I'd like to start with a, a super basic question of who are the ancestors? Yeah, for sure. People use the word ancestors in lots of different ways. And in the, in the broadest sense, they're all the powers, human and other than human, who came before us or perhaps even that are senior to us in the moment. And in that way, the ancestors can be the spirits of land, the stars, the viruses and whales and, you know, all the other beings that we're embedded in relationship with. I tend to use, <clears throat> excuse me, the word ancestors a little more narrowly to refer to the human dead, all those who have previously been incarnate but are not incarnate now. They, in that sense, they do dwell in the present and they also are the same ones that are returning. So the descendants or the not yet born ones are also the ancestors. They're the ancestors returning. And so the ancestors don't dwell in the past, even though we experience them in a sense in the past because they're ones who preceded us uh, and or who have passed before us. In an even more narrow sense, the ancestors can refer to those among the dead, the spirits or souls of the dead, those who are not incarnate right now, who are, not, who are relatively at peace and who understand they've died and they've gone through a transition after the death of the body. And they're relatively safe to relate with, even though they're complicated like the living. In that way, 
ancestor is used in a in a more narrow way to distinguish between the ghosts or the not yet ancestors or the troubled dead. And in that way, we're talking about death as the start of a rite of passage that doesn't really complete until someone has been received in by the ancestors and so and assume their place among the community of the ancestors. And so in that way, the human dead is a more inclusive category. It includes the ancestors and the ones who haven't quite arrived at that station yet. But generally speaking, it's the human dead, but dead is a misleading way to speak of them at times because it implies they're not relating. They're quite relatable. They just aren't incarnate in the same way. Mm. Yes. Uh, and there's interesting parallels in, in your book of ancestors of your own lineage of a family like mum, dad, and so on uh, down the track, but also of, of land, of For sure. uh, career, of different lineages you can connect with as well. It's good to distinguish in the broadest sense, the ancestors are, are the collective wisdom and unresolved trouble of the species. And more specifically, when I say ancestors, I tend to give a lot of focus to ancestors of blood or of body, but they're certainly not the only kind of ancestor. They're not even necessarily the most important ones. And they're also ancestors of spiritual lineage if you're part of a tradition, or as you said, a vocation. If you're a scientist, they're ancestors <laughs> whose bodies of work precede you and who you draw on and who might inspire you. Same if you're an artist or whatever it might be. And ancestors of land and of place who, whose bodies and intelligence have become rooted in the land. They're part of the collective wisdom or deities or spirits of place. And they might not be related to you by blood. You could have arrived in a difficult or comfortable way, whatever it is to where you're at. But is good etiquette to recognize who's already there. And that has to do with unraveling some of the legacies of colonialism or just having good manners when you travel or when you're in a new place. So lots of different kinds of ancestors might become relevant for our path or our day, depending on what we're up to that day. But our, our ancestors of blood and of body are kind of stuck with us and we're stuck with them. So it's worth working it out with them a bit and including at least some care and attention to them in our spiritual training and practice. So it's an interesting path for someone of the heritage you, you described uh, at the very beginning there to have gotten to this place. Uh, would yeah. you mind telling us a little bit about what led you to that path? For sure. I had the good fortune when I was even still a, teenager, early 20s, to connect with teachers of shamanic practice, paganism, revival forms of you know, shamanism, things like that, in Ohio, where I grew up in the United States. And they encouraged me to connect with my own ancestors. I'd never considered that as a source of value. I had a judgmental attitude toward my family. And so I, in the visioning practices, ended up connecting with much older ancestors who lived even before Christianity and European colonialism and troubles like that. So it was a, a reconnection with my own ancestral indigeneity or place honoring culture before uh, Europe became hazardous to a lot of the indigenous peoples outside of Europe. And that was great. 
that was a very impactful and early paradigm shift for me to see that my own experience of culture that felt lacking or felt incomplete from my family of origin growing up in suburban United States actually was a doorway into much older earth connected wisdom, which is exactly what I was seeking about. And that doesn't mean that therefore there's some really intact culture I can go to because my own ancestral traditions in England, Germany, Ireland, places my people immigrated from, those traditions had been smashed into really fragmented bits even before those people chose to come to North America. But in spirit, ritually speaking, it's possible to reconnect with those older ones. And that's been a source of healing and it's helped me to interrupt the uh, amnesia that comes with being a white settler colonialist is that ideology, whether or not it's brought conscious, the ideology of white supremacy or the, you know, European supremacy is, uh, it's super toxic, obviously. And you can't just replace it with nothing. There's a need to find some kind of healthier identity. And one strategy for that is, is breaking up this idea of monolithic whiteness and understanding the history more and understanding the specific origin places of of our people to the degree that well, it's not just for European folks, but for anyone uh, to, to get more specific and break up the idea of these different races or things like that. It's a very hazardous view. Mm. Yes. And so with that, where, where and when did that study amplify for it to become a, a life passion now? Yeah, I was I was excited about what I was learning through looking at a lineage focus with my people and getting to know my father's father's lineage, my mother's mother's lineage, and then continuing that pattern to my mother's father's lineage and my father's mother's lineage. And so I combined that with genealogy research, which I was fortunate to have access to you know, a decent amount of information. And then I trained in... Uh, psychology. So I'm a, a licensed marriage and family therapist and a doctor of psychology. And w what I, after maybe five or six years of immersion in that kind of ritual, I started slowly to help other people to in a similar way and notice that others found benefit from that as well. That was in 2004, 2005. And as I went deeper with my psychological training, and started to just get more lived experience helping other people through the work, I started to see that so much of our psychological challenges, not just the mental and emotional challenges, but the spiritual, physical, the whole bundle of things people struggle with, can usefully be understood as unresolved, or unresolved ancestral trouble or, tra <coughs> or trauma that hasn't been metabolized or worked through yet. And so I've stayed with that focus and i have for you know 20 years and the last five or six years i've partly through the election of our currently very terrible president but also other factors uh, my involvement in west african traditions they've been a catalyst for me to become even more willing to try to speak to histories of racism and discrimination and trouble uh, cultural troubles and so recognizing how deep the cultural troubles run and how their ancestral troubles has also kept me focused with ancestral healing work. Because I see the way that bringing in the ancestors directly 
helping them to get the healing they need and partnering with them can be a great uh, source of resilience for cultural change. Have you noticed that play out within like your family and your community of, of your, your home base? Yeah. Um, well, we're, our family's blessed. We have a beautiful daughter who's an ancestor returning. So in the most immediate way, caring for her is ancestor reverence. Mm-hmm. I notice that I'm, I'm less judgmental toward my parents and my family who maybe isn't sharing all the same interests, but has been healing for my family and my perception of my family uh, to situate them in a larger context. So things are as good as they can be, I think, with family. And, and that's, that's great. And it's helped me as a, in terms of my cultural position as someone who enjoys, that's the right word, I guess it is, a lot of structural privilege as a guy, as a cisgendered person, as a white person, as an American, as someone who has a PhD, to not collapse into a shame experience around that, but to seek to embody who I am and, and my cultural position in a way that's responsible and committed to cultural change. So. The ancestors have been supportive to me in that way. And yeah, they are concerned with us getting clear about what we're here to do and doing that. So I felt all along through involvement in different traditions and different you know, life challenges like anybody has, that my ancestors have had my back and they want me to stay focused, stay focused, take care of what I'm here to do. So that's, that's great. There's a sense of them holding me accountable and supporting me at the same time. Yeah. And how have you, how have you noticed these practices just flowing out within your, your general life of changes based off some of the, the ritual and the healing that, that you've done for, for your lineages? I've gotten better at grieving for one. I think there's a lot of un metabolized or stuck sorrow in especially when our lineages have enacted a lot of harm toward others which is the case generally with settler colonialism and all that so i feel more uh, that the, the grief is able to move more freely now which is good and so i feel like there's a softening that's occurred and I love teaching. I love sharing with others how they can get connected with their own people. And so I, I have the blessing of a meaningful life. And they're supporting me in doing what I'm here to do. So that's, that's great. And a lot of folks um, don't get to have quite that combination of things. And it's been so good to see how others are have healing in their families from connecting with the ancestors. So there's a, you know, I didn't set out to have the specialization. It's not the only thing I teach either, but it, there's such a need for this and it's heightened now with the pandemic. There's a lot of people, depending on where you're at, dying without funeral services, without people around them, without a lot of prep for that. And so that is a kind of thing that I feel positioned to be supportive with. So we're doing some teaching and ritual around that, but um, mostly the, my ancestors have brought me a 
a beautiful family and a meaningful life. And so that's great. And you know, the, the ancestors in particular are masters at humanity and knowing what the human experience is like. I could work with the Archangel Michael and the spirit of the ocean and the Pleiades, and that could be differently interesting, but none of those are human. Exactly. The ancestors are masterful at being in our humanity. So they've helped to soften my rough edges and helped me to be a kinder, more balanced person. And what, what sort of ways have you noticed of how ancestors consciousness affects normal everyday people's consciousness? One thing that I enjoy about this ritual focus is seeing the way it breaks down or softens people's sense of being just an individual, Mm -hmm. that it's just my personal story. It's just my personal suffering. Well, what if, Almost everything that your listeners struggle with was intergenerational or ancestral or systemic rather than just personal. How does that shift it? I think it shifts it actually in a big way to see that the disconnection from land, the legacies of sexism and misogyny, racism, colonialism, like exploitative capitalism, things like that. What if most of what we struggle with is systemic intergenerational trouble. If we frame it like that, we're actually quite connected. It's not lonely, at least. There's still a mess to work with, but we're not alone in it. That matters because a lot of people quietly feel pretty alone or they don't feel that seen. It's another thing our own specific ancestors, if we choose to get to know them consciously, can bring forward is the ability to see us accurately. Like really on a soul level, like we see you, we see your gifts, we see what you're doing here. We're cut from the same mold. We know you. And a lot of folks don't have that soul level sense of being seen and their ancestors can bring that and that's precious and good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's, um, what are some of the, what are the lines between where this crosses from a spirit model to the psychological model? And, and how do those two interact? It's a big, layered question. You can force it all on it. I'm like, oh, man, what am I going to say about that? Um, the, in a real generalized way, at least in the traditions that I've encountered, I can't, I can't generalize too much, but a lot of times psychological work gets a bit cut off from spiritual reality in a way that makes it just incomplete and missing important parts. And also the spiritual teachings and trainings fail to benefit from what's really good and really um, awesome about psychology. So in general, I see them as having important medicines for one another. And the ancestors what to say. I I just see psychology as most of psychology is the study of humans relationships, living human relationships with themselves and with other living humans. That's fine. But living humans have relationships with folks who are not living human, like the ancestors and with folks who are not human, like plants and animals and mountains and deities and land spirits and all that. And so all of those 
other kinds of people who are not human people have important, they have their own psychology. The, the psyche of the mountain or the psyche of our ancestors or the psyche of the river is different than maybe, you know, the psychology of your living human friend. So in that way, psychology unconsciously replicates a colonialist view that says only living humans are real people. And everything else is just kind of a thing, or it's not quite alive. So in that way, our ancestors, our older ancestors, especially depending on where people are from, can bring a more complete map of the world that recognizes the personhood or the reality of these others. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, that's a little bit of what I could say about it. But I, I guess I tend to see the ritual and spirit work and ancestral healing as the more inclusive frame that uh, can can hold psychology within it but brings other things to the table as well uh and so when when messages are coming through from ancestor uh what are some of the ways that they can come through whether it's spontaneously or direct contact sure yeah let me clarify also for listeners who maybe aren't familiar when we're talking about relating with ancestors, it's important that I don't just mean the recent remembered dead. I'm talking about everybody who's listening, everybody on earth has thousands of generations of people before you. And so the vast majority of human people, the vast majority of our ancestors lived before remembered names, before the last like three, five, ten generations, whatever it is. And so when we're engaging ritually or spiritually with the mystery of the ancestors, it's those ones predominantly. That doesn't rule out relating with the recent dead as well. But the ancestors open to a really wide and expansive field of consciousness. And, and everybody has access to that. It's part of our birthright as a human. How do people experience that? Well, lots of different ways. It can be through a waking vision or a sense of just speaking to them in a normal state of consciousness. It could be through a dream. It could be through a light trance. Sometimes we'll do that in group ritual with drumming or things that just encourage a listening space. And it can be through synchronicities where an event happens and you just feel them present because something like some sign appeared or a song came on the radio or a sense of feeling them present. <clears throat> It can be a sense of just direct knowing or just feeling them. It's not different than necessarily from how people would experience their connection with a deity or with the spirit of a plant or, or really with another living human, although the ancestors are not typically physically incarnate in the same way. Occasionally, I suppose they can, I mean, they can speak through other living people, but that gets into mediumship and whether it's conscious or unconscious. but So there are lots of ways. Um, in the technical sense, you're asking about uh, epistemology or what do we culturally consider legit knowledge. Yeah. And indigenous cultures tend to allow for a much wider field of potential information to come through. And so part of our work as ritualists or spirit people, if we haven't been raised with it, is to uh, build up that muscle or allow for that those other kinds of communications to happen. And once we do, they can be just as strong and real as uh, communicating with other physically incarnate people. 
Yeah. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed, you just reminded me then uh, with you talking about ancestors being thousands of, of generations back, that it's not just the name that we know recently. Uh, when I'd done just my own improv sort of ancestry work, I was like, okay, well, I'll go the first dead back uh, and work up my tree. Uh, and, and from reading your book, it made so much more sense the way you've described it there to work the other way to work from the, the oldest unhealed down to now. And so you've got a, a bigger people of collective ancestor working to help uh, the, the more recent uh, deceased. Uh, I, I found One of the, that interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a very important principle and at least how I approach the work. And it has to do with ritual safety. And it's important that we understand that the dead who are not yet ancestors, who are not yet at peace, if we're going to meaningfully assist them to become at peace, then the approach that I favor is to ask the older ancestors on the lineage who are already healed to gather them up. It respects the etiquette of the lineage and of uh, the seniority of the older ones by asking our elders to intervene. It's ritually safer than walking into a situation and presuming you know what needs to happen. And it affirms the lineage or the continuity rather than just individuals. And it recognizes some stuff can be really hazardous among the dead. Some humans, as we know, can be very malicious or cunning and harmful, like sociopathic, dangerous folks. And then beyond that, there's a lot of people who just make poor choices and have bad values and um, are harmful during their life to others in a big way. And when those people die, they don't automatically become wise and kind and loving. And they also don't stop being related to the people they were related to. So if you have a parent that was a really hazardous person and they pass, they could continue to be troubled and continue to be tangled up with really unhelpful energies. And to just rush into that is not necessarily any safer than it would have been during life. And it can be resolved. We just need to be systematic and intentional about how we approach it. Yeah. I, uh, I, I didn't, I, from what I know of my family history, there's, there's none of that. So I hadn't thought of that side of the equation uh, until oh, I was reading that book and I, I had to put the book down and, and ponder that a lot more and realize the, the intensity uh, of, of what you can be dealing with. Uh, and the psychological aspect of in people that are alive, uh, if your living ancestor asks you to do something, you're much more inclined to do it than your child asking you to do something as well. Uh, that yeah. there's that the history of respect that's there uh, that works a lot easier. And it's like, Oh yes, uh, of, of course he'll heal above and get them to help do most of the work that they're designed. <laughs> they're, they're already prepared to do. Uh, sure. Let me say a thing actually about the especially troubled dead, because a lot of living folks, if they were to imagine approaching the topic of ancestor healing or reverence beyond just the abstract, actually do a session with one of the practitioners or read the book or do the practices, whatever it is, do the online course. One of the common things is, well, why would I do that? My people are kind of like difficult people to say it generously. 
And I've spent a lot of time having a boundary with them. That's served me well. Why would I want to open that up? And that's a really legit question. Mm. And one hard further down the list. (laughs) Yeah. And, and it's not the plan to directly relate with any of the dead who are troubled. Although the work of ancestral lineage repair and healing up the lineages aims to assist those who are not yet at peace. The actual way that it happens does not involve directly contacting the ghosts or the troubled ones personally. You're asking the elders to intervene and bring them what they need. That's good for us when the forces that weigh on us unhelpfully get the healing they need. It's selfishly good for us. It also comes from an ethic of non-abandonment. And even though people may behave terribly and we can very appropriately have a boundary with them, they're still related to us. We're still profoundly and separably interconnected. And so we don't get to exile others out of the fabric of reality completely. We can have a boundary with them until conditions change totally and ask others to handle it because we're not going to be the ones to do it. But if we hold an ethic that folks who behave harmfully should be permanently exiled or destroyed or something like that, that doesn't go in a good direction really. So there is an ethic in the way at least I approach the work of non-abandonment. And that's totally compatible with having healthy boundaries. Yeah. Well, especially when, uh, when you've got a living family member or, or person you'd know that you've set a boundary up that's toxic, what do they usually do? They push on the boundaries. What's the difference when they're not living? It's the same situation. Yeah. In that sense, the ancestors who are troubled in people's families may already be unhelpfully impacting them. Hmm. And if that's the case, it makes sense to give attention to it. The process, as I guided, begins with an assessment of what the current amount of ancestral influence is and where it's coming from, just to know how to proceed. So, look, it's my view that a lot, like at least more than half of the things people struggle with are ancestrally connected or related. So it's a missing framework in how we approach stuff. It is. That's uh, that's, that's a a big reason why why I wanted to have you on, why I picked up your book to begin with was I was noticing patterns within uh, my clients that are telling stories about their, their family and just lining up that, they were saying, well, I've got this problem. But my mum had that problem too. And, right. and her so grandmother. So and, her grandmother. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, if they had their family history, that story would be even older. And it's not their problem. It's, it's their situation. It's, yeah, it's become their problem because they're born into yeah. it. But this is, in a way, when a lot of our ancestors, and I know it's, it's complicated there with the history being also penal colony, but the ancestors in England, especially in other places and also in North America, the, the occupation of land and the genocide that followed from that, it's um, aside from the obvious and ongoing harm toward indigenous Aboriginal peoples, it also f- has functioned as a kind of intergenerational curse upon the colonizers. Mm. And a lot of the unresolved trauma that European ancestors, Australians or North Americans or anyone in the Americas really is struggling with, it can be from a lot of things, but one, one of the factors is the 
the toll on the psyche, the toll on like the, the base level wellness to enact generation after generation, a boundary violation of occupation of land. Hmm. It's not good for anybody to do that. No. Well, uh, I had, I had an experience at the beginning of last year that really slapped me in the face with that. Uh, I was asked to, to go give healings at a festival that, that was on uh, traditional land uh, and it was, it was on the land of the Dakajan people. Uh, they'd had permission off them. They actually did things really great as a festival. They, they employed the elders. They did a lot with the community for it. Uh, so on, on paper, it looked like it was a respectful event. Uh, but as soon as I got there, I had a feeling of dread and that I shouldn't be there. Uh, when I went to the space where I was going to work, I did my dedication to land and ancestor. That feeling dropped. As soon as I stepped out of my working space, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was, it was there the whole weekend while I worked and was doing healing. I had blessing. As soon as I stepped out of the healing tent, it hit me. The only time outside of the healing tent that it wasn't was the first night I went there. I looked for the elders and, and shared a meal with them and listened to their stories. And it wasn't there then as well. But it was clear the land didn't like the event. And looking at the event outside of that, there was a lot of people that were just there to party, doing drugs, treating the land with disrespect. So it was pushing back against it it appreciated aspects of the event, but most of the event it didn't. And I'd been aware and respectful before, but that was a, was a clear moment where uh, you could not deny the energy of the spirit of the land uh, and the ancestors that were there. Yeah. It's like that. And there's so much to say on it, but <laughs> I don't, uh, let me, let me soften it a little bit to say that I don't, it's possible to have deep, sorrow and humility and a, a longing to show up as a good ally and to be part of the solution mm. without collapsing into shame or judgment of one's own ancestors. Mm. Like the, the solution is not to be like white people are bad or my ancestors are bad, or I'm a harmful person by extension because of the actions of my ancestors. That's kind of a escape in a way. Uh, it, to say, I have inherited unresolved debts. I'm born into a system that perpetuates harm. Absolutely. How do I move in a loving and grounded and kind way, including a self-loving way within that system? And to be part of dismantling it, shifting it, bringing more justice, more kindness. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that can be done and it's in no way a, a replacement or a substitute for tangible reparations and systemic change. But it, it's in complement to those things. It's possible for people of uh, ancestors who have enacted harm to make sure that those very ancestors are at peace in spirit, that they're more healed and that they're not in a ghosty condition. And in doing that, the ancestors themselves actually become part of the solution. They can become motivated to participate in the cultural change. And my, like my own white European ancestors who were not, who almost certainly during life in different ways were racist and participated in those systems are allies for me now. They're not down with that anymore. They can also change. Mm -hmm. 
And the dead can change even after they've died. That's very important. Mm. It means that ancestors who acted harmfully during life can, not automatically, but they can become allies for positive cultural healing and change in the present. Yeah. Uh, and with that, then a lot of uh, your book covered a fair few different things. So there was like working with the ancestors in ritual sense, just paying honor. Uh, there was elements of, of mediumship. There was elements of healing and forgiveness. Where would you recommend people start if they're, they're going to with that? The best place of all to begin, if people are willing to, is to con- consider a session with one of the people trained in the work. So there's a directory of those folks on my website and ancestormedicine.org. And a handful are in Australia, but all over, really. And we have lots of low-income options if accessibility and cost is a barrier for people. But individual sessions are great at the start just to have someone guide you through the practices in a connective way. Otherwise, in the book, there is a progression of exercises. So if people are self-motivated, I would go through that progression. And there's a kind of sequential sense to it of assessing what's going on with any given lineage and then connecting with older ancestral guides and teachers and calling them in. And I guide an online course once a year. So that's an option. It's popular. And we go through those steps together with a lot of support. There used to be in-person intensives before the global pandemic, but now those are on pause. Okay, yeah. And there's a lot of support for the work in general. Like we have some spaces on social media with others that people can dialogue with about the work. But in this moment, because the intensives are closed indefinitely in person, the individual sessions, which can totally happen by Zoom or phone or online, are the most efficient way to dive in, to have that extra support. Yeah. Uh, and for people who, who might have been listening to this but with the question of, well, what if I just don't know anything? If I've been adopted or um, yeah, it's good. quite young, where, where can they... It doesn't have to be a barrier. The genealogical information or the, just even the, knowing the names of your biological parents, any of that, it's not required for connecting with your ancestors. It's not, really. This isn't a historical genealogical exercise. It's a ritual process, and every adoptee or person who's been orphaned or didn't have the opportunity or was protected from their biological parents, nonetheless is connected into the larger body of humanity just as tangibly and viscerally and cellularly as any other human. And so in that way, there's less information to go on. But even with people who have a lot of historical knowledge, mostly the connection is with the older ancestors anyways. And so it doesn't hinge upon having the historical knowledge. It really doesn't. And it's totally good and possible, and this is a case-by-case thing, depends on what people feel for themselves, to honor adoptive family as well and to respect the people who raised you, of course. And so ideally, there's a getting to know your biological ancestors, your ancestors of blood and bone, and with them, then giving respect and reverence and care to your adoptive family. 
So it's a both and kind of thing. Mm. And people's circumstances vary. So sometimes people don't have a good feeling about adoptive family. So it depends. Uh, and what happens when there's conflicting branches of family, whether it's like that, the conflicting of adoptive and biological, or if it's uh, an extreme example, like a, a Jewish mother and a German father background that there's been a, a horrible rift there. Yeah. Or someone who's half Aboriginal Australian and half European colonialist. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. The, uh, in general, the principle would be to get to know each of those ancestral uh, rivers or lineages on its own terms first. So you're honoring that connection, you're honoring the other connection. And typically it would be starting with where you're more comfortable. And once you've gotten to know directly the different ancestral inheritances that make up who you are, it's possible to ask them in their more healed state to come into a conversation with one another and to harmonize to basically you're, you're inviting the healed lineages to be in woven or in connection with one another in your own body and in your own psyche. And in that way, people who are multiracial or ethnically diverse or have different histories at, at times are in tension or really complex in the same body. Yeah. It's in one sense of, uh, you know, it's not my lived experience, so I can't speak to it from that place, but what I've observed and supporting a lot of people with, with that life story is although it's a challenge when the healing is moving, it positions those people to be really beautiful catalysts for cultural healing. And it, so those folks have a particular, uh, particularly powerful kind of medicine of bridging and weaving to, to bring to the larger cultural healing we need. But it can be a lot, and it has to do with vulnerable topics like identity and belonging. And, you know, there, there are people in the United States who have a lot of indigenous ancestry, but they're not tribally enrolled. Uh, so they're not legally a Native American or they weren't raised with that culture or something like that. So it, uh, it can be painful to be like not fully a part of any one group. Like you're not black enough, you're not white enough or whatever, whatever those really painful, like you're not whatever enough stories are. That's something multiracial people often have to deal with and it, it sucks. And so that's, that's hard. Yeah. I've, uh, I've met people who were, racist where against their own ancestry uh, because there was more of one than the other. And that it's, it's quite clear that racism comes from their ancestry and that's just part of what they've taken on. And so they've obviously got this self shame thing. That's not helping their lives. Yeah, racism in a sense is ancestral. It's an ancestral superiority. Complex. Yeah. Like it's a, it's this view that my people are better than your people or some of, some of my people are better than some of my other people. And at a fundamental level, it's like, wow, that's a, that's a really unsophisticated, harmful frame on the world. But okay, yeah. bring kindness to it. Try to soften it. Yeah. Uh, so if people have been interested in this, uh, where can they find your, your work? Yeah, it's ancestralmedicine.org. 
we, we have a lot of online courses and a lot of hours of free talks and media on the website. And so we've been developing a, a lot of the online offerings, which is great because it means we can reach people in other places. And so there's actually a lot of folks already in Australia that are involved and we're glad for that. So I would just say that we're also committed to keeping things accessible to people of different economic means. And so if you want to be connected, you could sign up for the newsletter or just see what's on the website with the upcoming online courses. Those and the directory of practitioners would be the way to, to engage or the book. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we should have done this slightly earlier because your, your online class only just started days ago. No, it's all right though. There are other ones coming up and there's always something happening. Yeah. I know you've got the next one starting would be the animism one by the time this comes out. Yeah. That one's starting in June. That's right. And the series that's happening that we're calling bring out your dead for the pandemic. It's kind of cheeky, but it is actually quite serious in focus is starting this week or recording now in early April, but will remain open through the spring provided we have space. So fantastic. Excellent. Uh, Would you want to say a little bit about what that's going to be about then if they're they're helping folks to have the space to come together to enjoy some teachings, but also some shared time in ritual group ritual space to bring kindness and perhaps a little bit of ritual support or intervention for the many thousands of people who are dying in the current pandemic and the ones who are likely headed that way uh, in the coming months. I mean, hopefully it doesn't play out as severely as predictions are, but at least in the United States, the predictions are quite dire because we've managed things so poorly, Mm. but responding with kindness and ritual to the uptick in sudden death. And we'll have a good time. We'll do some teaching. We'll do some discussion and, and all that. Yeah. Sounds uh, very helpful. Thank you for your generosity with your time here today. Uh, it's yeah. been appreciated. Thanks, Lance. And just leave your listeners with the encouragement to know that even if your living family or your recent ancestors were really difficult people, that there's goodness that you inherit from your ancestors in a bigger sense. And it's possible to tap into that goodness directly and bypass a lot of the static and trouble. So to, to feel encouraged that these kinds of practices are within reach for you. So, thanks, Lance. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and perhaps learned something new. If you did, I'd love for you to subscribe or drop a review on whatever favorite podcast you have. Or if you've been enjoying the video versions on YouTube or Facebook, do it there. If something really did click home for you with this episode, perhaps it could benefit one of your friends or family. If so, it'd really help if you shared this on your social medias. Until next time, you've been listening to Akasha Talks with Lance Baker.